everyone, welcome to Handing the Shame Back, a channel dedicated to survivors of sexual abuse everywhere you are in the world and however you identify yourselves. This is a safe place for you to land if you're wanting to learn more about how survivors navigate their way through the trials and trauma of it all. But there is hope, she said convincingly, and to offer that, I have amazing guests that come on the show every week. Uh, so very grateful to bring someone special to you today. As with all of them though, there is a trigger warning, and if for any reason you start feeling anxious or angry or upset, please stop watching, go to the show notes below and you'll be directed to some resource and support. I've got the amazing Angela Williams with me today and she joins us from Atlanta, Georgia. She's a survivor, she's an advocate and she's an author. And this is part one of her story. Welcome to the show, Angela. Oh, so lovely to be with Gloria. Thank you. So as with all shows, we tend to start with um, your childhood, as much or as, as little as you're comfortable to share, uh, what happened to you, um, kind of, yeah, over to you. Well, I was um, born, when I was born, my mother uh, and father were married, but my father had epilepsy and never wanted children. So while I was, my mom was pregnant with me, my biological father um, left her. So I think trauma kind of began in the womb. And when I was three days old, she took me to him and he held me, she said, and she repeated the story my whole childhood that he held me for about three seconds and gave me back and said, I don't want anything to do with you. And I don't want anything to do with her. So it was 1965 when I was born and it wasn't a popular time for a woman to be divorced and to be a single mom. And she was a school teacher. So she was in a bit of a fishbowl. And so I think she sought out to find a husband really quick. And so she met a man uh, that she uh, knew for two weeks, she met him in a laundromat and uh, married him. And he turned out to be the devil. And I truly think that he he targeted us. I think he saw a very vulnerable um, and hurting woman and he saw a little girl. Um, they were, I was about three, just shy of my third birthday when they got married and um, that my hell began. Uh, he, uh, he, he tortured me to no end. The, the physical abuse was brutal and it was cruel and um, you know, I have memories and flashbacks, and I think I think God allows us to remember things as we're, we're uh, emotionally um, strong enough to remember them. But uh, some of my first memories um, are of Him putting a bowl of oatmeal in front of me, a huge bowl, and giving me like thirty seconds to eat it, the whole bowl. And if I didn't, I was beaten. And he locked me in hot cars where I would almost be suffocating and trying to gas for air. And then he would open the car door. This would be a hundred degree, you know, weather in Savannah. Um, he would sit me in a chair and dare me to move all day long. And I couldn't even get up to go to the bathroom. So when I would wet myself, he would, um, 
I would be punished and beaten, usually with a belt um, or anything he could grab. And I just remember being in constant fear. And during that time, he started the sexual abuse. And the sexual abuse was like the the physical abuse was so horrific. So he would make the sexual abuse like our special time and very tender. And after it was over, it was our secret. And he would reward me. He would reward me with candy or he would take me to get a milkshake. And then the switch would turn. It would just flip. And then he would be right back to cursing me, beating me, spitting on me, kicking me, just um, just violent behavior. And uh, my mother was also a victim of domestic violence. He was cruel to her too, um, but she did witness a, a tremendous amount of, of my physical abuse. And then that turned into so much emotional abuse because I just, I lived holding my breath almost in a minefield when the next bomb was going to go off. And I just remember always being so scared as a little girl, just, just wanting to hide and wanting to just crawl out of my skin. If that makes sense. If anybody could relate to that, I didn't even want to be in my own skin. Um, Angela, are you, uh, sorry to interrupt, but I'm just trying to clarify, you saying your mum was complicit in the abuse and that she would equally psychologically or or physically abuse you as well? Is that kind of what you were saying? She was complicit in the abuse. And yes, there were times in my childhood where she would abuse me as well. She would snap. She would, um, uh, there was one time and I was, um, a teenager and I had become very, uh, rebellious at this point against her and against the abuse. And, um, I was hospitalized. I, she took a mirror and hit me over the head and I had 16 stitches in my scalp. Um, there were times of just shaking me and I think it just a lot out of her own sheer frustration and not, you know, not knowing what to do. But I was charged at a very, very young age that if I told, he would kill my, my mother. Yeah. And then I, I also had two younger siblings that I tried to protect. So at a very young age, I was trying to keep the peace, trying to protect my mother, trying to protect my siblings, trying to stay out of the next um, beating, berating. Um, and then there were just times of such humiliation as a child. He, one time, I was about eight years old and he dressed me, he, he stripped me naked. He put a diaper on me and he made me ride my bicycle, um, my little bicycle on the grass, which, you know, it's very difficult for a little one to ride a bicycle on the grass um, in front of the neighbors in the front yard. So the neighbors would go by and, you know, laugh at me and make fun of me. And, um, he, like so many, um, abusers, um, perpetrators, predators, he isolated us. So we didn't have any friends. Um, no one could come and play with me. If, if a neighbor, if they were playing kickball and the ball rolled into our yard, he took the ball. So we were just the weird, strange family. Um, and of course, um, as many people experience domestic violence, you can hear the screaming, you can hear the yelling, you can see it happening, but no one intervenes. 
no one dares call law enforcement or um, God forbid, you know, get involved because that gets messy. So I, I feel really strongly that, I, it, that to see something, do something. I, I feel I, I spent my whole childhood um, and, and my abuse lasted for 14 years. So it lasted until I was 17 years old. Yeah. So from age three to 17, there wasn't a, a, a week that I wasn't raped um, or in some way beaten or humiliated or cursed. Um, I think I can remember as a child, maybe Christmas day might've been a reprieve or um, maybe a birthday or if we went to my grandmother's house. Um, but there were very few days every week that were kind of peaceful days. Um, we kind of uh, just cheered when he went to work because he worked shift work. So we had some seats, some times where he wasn't in the house and we could breathe and just be normal for just a moment. It's interesting, but, you know, I, I'm, uh, first of all, I'm so, so sorry you experienced such horror. That's just, oh, my heart sinks as I hear you and uh, much love to you, Angela. I, I think people don't want to believe this happens and yet we know that it does. And the sad thing is you've got a parent who's tasked with protecting you who decides instead to align with the main abuser, which means there's nowhere for you to go but to endure. And, um, you know, you also had the double whammy, and for our amazing survivors watching, hello, lovely ones, um, there will be some of them out there as well who can totally relate to what you're saying with that awful dread of, when's he coming back because as much as he will leave to do the shift work he will equally also return so it's that awful trauma isn't it that that fight flight freeze form that we we can do um what what was your kind of way of responding to the stress um i think it's a little girl i um i was always on guard but I think I would find solace in, uh, in trying to be normal in those moments of peace. I would color. I would play with my dolls. I would listen to music. I would watch movies. I would try so hard just to be normal in those moments. I would go outside and catch lightning bugs. I had a voracious imagination. So my mom would give me this bucket of old clothes. So I would dress up in these old clothes and I would be Jackie Onassis or I would be Cher performing <laughs> a concert. And so I'm not having any friends. I would just get lost in my imagination. Um, Loretta Lynn was really big back in the day and Dolly Parton. So I would make up these country songs and, you know, I would hear the crowds roaring for me as I sang my country song that I had written myself, you know, at age 10, 11, 12. So I think just my own imagination and my resilience, I think survivors have so much resilience and I try, I've always been a positive person, even in the torment. Um, so today I'm like, I even try to find the positive for what I went through. And I am a large intake charge kind of person and I can compartmentalize. 
and you want me on my your team because I'm very competitive. I don't give up. I don't stop. <laughs> and I get I get shit done. So <laughs> I can attribute that to my the old G, the old GSD person. No, we, we love it. No, everyone swears on the show. But look, uh, you raised a couple of things, and I think it's useful for for our, our beautiful survivor family watching or listening to this to get this. As survivors, we obviously had coping mechanisms and we needed to adapt and we needed to find that resilience that you so clearly had and embodied and finding a way to use your imagination and finding a way to to be free in the moment where the abuser's not around. But isn't it interesting because as survivors, we are so highly qualified in conflict resolution, negotiation strategies, managing stress, dealing with difficult people, and the list goes on. So survivors watching, you go, because look at what you've got that you may not have had. So I wonder what you think of that, Ange. Um, I'm sorry, ask that question again. Oh, I wonder what you think of that take on our survivor coping strategies that actually it's it's led us to be really qualified in lots of ways. Yes, I think it served me well in my career. I, I um, am a professional real estate broker um, professionally, and then I, of course, do my advocacy work. But I am able to multitask extremely well and to compartmentalize, and I think that really helps. And um, I... Uh, I, I'm so grateful that I was as strong as I was. I, I did have my weak moments. I, I had a suicide attempt, a very serious suicide attempt at 17. Um, throughout my childhood, I get, just kept figuring, trying to figure out a way to escape or, or to, to make it end and prayed for a happy family my entire childhood. But I, I snapped at age 16. I, I had tried to find my biological father thinking, oh, he'll deliver me. He'll come and save me. And he was a tremendous, um, a tremendous disappointment. Uh, he, he, he had no interest in helping me at all. And at 17, I took 64 sleeping pills and drank a half a bottle of vodka straight and was determined to end it. But he wasn't going to rape me again. He wasn't going to touch me again. And that was the only way that I knew that I could make it end. And thank God, by the grace of God, I, uh, my life was spared. And I tried several other ways that night to kill myself. And I, I climbed to the top of a, a bridge, the Talmadge Bridge in Savannah, and I uh, didn't have the guts to let go. Um, I tried to drive over the bridge on the wrong side of the road and thought, I'm going to hurt somebody else. And so that was kind of the, the beginning of my end, uh, I to say. I, I never went back that night. And you can't say it was easy. It was one step in front of the other, a 17-year-old, homeless, penniless, jobless. <laughs> um, but I was able to... Uh, to live with a friend, a family uh, that was in my school to graduate from high school. And then I went straight to college and was able to try to bury it. Well, they say they saved your life. And, you know, what you had to find to manage all of that is just uh, unfathomable. And, um, you know, for survivors watching, though, 
you know, I didn't didn't realize this, but learned this recently that a survivor, a child who has been sexually abused, is three times more likely as an adult to take their own lives. So that's that's how big these statistics are, and and for our survivors who who follow this and watch this. There will be some among them, and including me, who did that as well. And I think it's we reach that point, don't we, Angela, of utter hopelessness. But you mentioned something earlier that I wanted to bring you back to, and then I want to talk to you a little bit about your mother. You mentioned being highly alert, and that hypervigilance would have served you well, I imagine, until it didn't. Can you tell us a little about that? Well, I think you you just become in a constant state of fear when you're so hypervigilant mm. and you can't process as things are coming at you. You process them all as threats and you're in a state where you can't enjoy um, enjoy life. You can't enjoy the present. You can't, you, you almost become so paralyzed and so numb. Um, so I had to relearn a lot from my childhood and I've had wonderful therapists and wonderful mentors and just people that love me that have helped me learn how to trust and how to take my guard down and how to take my mask off. I put a lot of masks on as a child because I thought if they if they knew what I was exposed to, the level of perversion and the level of things that I was forced to do, if anyone knew that they would just think I was one of the deplorables. And so I, I really masked who my true self was. So I had to discover my true self. But I think you, being... Yeah. Go ahead. Do you think your mother was aware you were being sexually abused? To this day, she denies. Um, I'm a mother. And I know if a mother is listening, you know your child. And you know... Um, if there is something horribly wrong with your yeah. child. So yeah. I really feel like she didn't want to know. She didn't want to help. She was very um, secure financially in her position as, as his wife. And that security, she was not willing to give up for our safety. And I know Does she believe that. you today, do you think? I think she does. I think she doesn't know how to process it. And I think that if she did truly um, believe everything, she would have to deal with her own guilt and her own failure as a mother. And so I love my mother. I respect and honor my mother. And I'm living out my truth, which is so hard for survivors to do. And I have really good boundaries. So when it's not healthy, I know that this conversation has to end or this visit has to end. And so I really guard my heart and I guard my truth. And yet I love her and I want the best for her and I want us to have a relationship. So I've had to just really understand she can only love me with the tools she has in her toolbox. And she went through a lot that she's never healed from and never processed. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because we only have one mother and so I understand what you're saying and you know the cost to us is is uh children who were abused um is that sometimes we 
it doesn't always work that we are, have our own backs because we're trying to maintain or retain a relationship with someone who was never there. So, you know, there will be survivors listening to this that can so relate. It's so complex and the layers go very, very deep, don't they? But They do go deep and the, yeah. you get past trauma that comes up at times, especially if you go through grief in life. I always say um, new grief brings up old grief in trying to process through that. But, uh, you know, I think learning to deal with, with people who aren't healed and who could be toxic in your life, if you want to have a relationship with them, you, you have to prioritize your own mental health. And I've fortunately learned how to do that. And I have a great support system in my husband and my children. They, I think, are my biggest um, advocates and defenders if they see if they see I'm being um, mistreated in any way. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's, you know, long tentacles, Angela, I think you'd agree. And, um, you know, to this day, or I believe to the day we die, there will be some impact at some point, no matter how it shows. So that's just, thus the life of a survivor. And I've managed to turn it around. I'd love to know what you do to actually, if I'm getting triggered or I'm feeling unsafe, to me it validates and vindicates what I endured. So I've managed to do that. Is there any little uh, technique you use that helps you when you're kind of feeling that triggering or, yeah? Um, so I have to get myself in the present moment. I think we can tend to live in the past and we can even live tend to live in the fears of the present, sure. I mean, in the future, in fears of the future. So I have to get myself grounded in the present moment and I have to reassure myself that I'm safe in this moment and that I have um, uh, autonomy and I have agency and I have power and control over my next decision. So I have to ground myself, I think, and that's real important. I also have a very strong faith um, in God and I do a lot of praying and a lot of reciting of scripture that really helps kind of reinforce how much I'm loved. And um, I try so hard not to let other people's uh, opinion of me impact me at all. I know who I am. And I think as a survivor, this has been a long journey for me to figure out who I am and to be confident in myself and that God created me just the way I'm supposed to be for a purpose and well, not hide anymore. Yeah. Me. Well, what, what a gift you are. And I'm so glad you're here. And I'm so glad your purpose is what it is. And I know you help a lot of people. So, Angela, I'd love it if you could stay right there. Um, survivors we're at the end of part one with the amazing Angela Williams all the way from Georgia Atlanta and look at the gold mine of information and nuggets she can bring to this so I'm eternally grateful to her we are going to go into part two but in the meantime I just want to say there's a couple of things Angela said already you know, that whole resilience thing, well, you know, if you put survivors and, and have us against any other group, I don't know if they would quite find the resilience we've had to um, as children. And for most of us, that carries on into our adult lives and 
um, appreciate that Angela said that. And the other thing she said was about being grounded and being present and safe in the moment when when being triggered or, or flashbacks. And I love that too. So as always, beautiful ones, I see you. I stand beside you and I believe you. Thank you.